Welcome to MCC from the Capitol, a podcast by the Missouri Catholic Conference. Today, we will abolish abortion. The Supreme Court has reached a decision on the landmark Roe v. Wade case. All these women don't get that choice anymore. It is time for us to show our friends and neighbors who are pro-choice who we are. We invite you to listen along as our host and legislative counsel, Jamie Morris, chats with experts about public policy issues from a Catholic perspective. We hope you enjoy this episode of MCC from the Capitol. Welcome to the Missouri Catholic Conference from the Capitol podcast, where we take a deeper look at the social and political issues facing Missouri and the Catholic Church and how those issues will impact public policy. My name is Jamie Morris, Legislative Counsel for the MCC. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss the historic ruling in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which overruled Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. We'll discuss the immediate impact and the immediate effect of the ruling for Missouri and the nation and the potential impact the ruling will have on the pro-life movement going forward. Joining me today to discuss the ruling is Carter Sneed, Professor of Law and Political Science and Director of the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. Professor Sneed is one of the world's leading experts on public bioethics and has advised officials in all three branches of the U.S. government on bioethical questions. He's also the author of What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. Professor Sneed also filed an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief, in the Dobbs case, and I could not be happier to be joined by him today. Thank you, Carter, for joining us. Thanks, Jamie. It's great to be with you today. Before we get into Dobbs itself, let's just start from the beginning. Let's lay the foundation for our listeners. Could you briefly just walk us through what was the current constitutional um, law in regards to abortion with Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey? Yeah, of course. So the story of American abortion jurisprudence from 1973 until a month ago has been a kind of story of a tortured effort to supply uh, a justification for an outcome that was favored by the justices who voted in favor of a right to abortion. And what that means will become clear in a second. So we start in 1973, the day before Roe v. Wade was decided, abortion was a crime from the moment of conception in 30 states. It was significantly restricted in, in the remaining states, much more so than the regime that Roe v. Wade ushered in. And it wasn't just the day before Roe that that was the case. That was true. Abortion had always been a crime um, or very significantly legally disfavored from the moment of the nation's founding. In the colonial era, abortion was a crime after what was described in the law as quickening, the point at which the, the life of the unborn child could be detected, usually just by the movement of the unborn child. Prior to that, there were no prosecutions for abortions um, prior to quickening, but nevertheless, uh, abortion itself was unlawful. That is, contracts to perform abortions would be voided as unlawful, houses of where they performed abortions would be shut down, and uh, if a baby, even a non-viable baby, were survived an attempted abortion even for a few moments, it would be treated as a homicide. And for that matter, if a woman was negligently killed by an abortionist conducting an abortion, that would be a predicate for what we call felony murder, meaning what would ordinarily be a negligent act that led tragically to a woman's death by a physician would be treated as a homicide. And that's because the abortion itself was treated as a felonious predicate 
for the prosecution of homicide in that case. So abortion was legally disfavored prior to quickening. It was prosecuted as a crime after quickening. And the reason for why the division between quickening and, and pre-quickening was, is it seems to me most persuasive that it was an evidentiary rule. You can't prosecute, you can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that someone unlawfully took the life of an unborn child if you can't detect the vital signs of the child in the first instance until after quickening. So I think it, the quickening rule was a rule of evidence, not a rule drawing a moral distinction between the unborn child at different gestational stages of development. But in any event, at the beginning of the 19th century in the United States, the quickening distinction was abandoned. Laws, many, many jurisdictions by statute adopted rules uh, banning abortion from the moment of conception. And and in 1868, when 14th Amendment was ratified, abortion was a crime from the moment of conception in three-fourths of the states, and it was a common law crime in the remaining states. And by the end of the 19th century, after the 14th Amendment was ratified, states continued to ban abortion from the moment of conception. So we have a history in the United States prior to 1973 of treating abortion as an unlawful action, criminally prosecutable in some cases. Now, women were not generally prosecuted. There are only three cases that I'm aware of in American history in which a woman has been prosecuted for seeking an abortion, and none of those cases uh, were those convictions affirmed on appeal. So there's never been a woman who has a conviction that was affirmed on appeal for the sake of pursuing an abortion. It's always been the abortionist who has been subject to criminal liability in our in our legal tradition. So you take that history, and the reason it becomes the history is important will become clear in a moment also. In 1973, in a case coming out of Texas, a case involving no factual findings at the trial level. In American law, we have the trial court's job. Part of their job is create a factual record to resolve factual disputes about medicine or science or circumstances or sociology or history or was the light red or green. There's always disagreement on fundamental questions in, in criminal and civil trials. And the trier of fact at the trial level is charged with the responsibility of resolving those disputes. But in this case, there was no trial record. There were no findings of fact. The trial court in Texas decided, drawing upon a case called Griswold versus Connecticut uh, from 1965, in which the court found that there was a right to privacy, which included the right of married couples to use contraception in the privacy of their homes. There was a concurring opinion in that case that uh, described the right to privacy as being part of the Ninth Amendment to the Constitution, which is basically just a catch-all saying the enumeration of the rights in the, in the previous amendments don't denigrate or disparage the rights that are held by the people. It doesn't create any new yes. rights or substantive rights. It's, it's a kind of, it was regarded as kind of a mystery as to what the Ninth Amendment even meant up until 1965. But then the court said, oh, the Ninth Amendment means there are all sorts of rights that we can discover and find and vindicate against state action. And the right to privacy is one of those rights. And so that's what the trial court in Texas grabbed onto and said, okay, the Ninth Amendment is the source of authority. It's a right to privacy. It includes the right to abortion. But then they didn't even enforce the, uh, their holding against the state of Texas. They abstained from enforcing their judgment uh, pursuant to a, uh, a very complex rule called uh, abstention doctrine, which we don't need to talk about. But nevertheless, they, they abstained from doing that. So the matter went up to the Supreme Court. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. And in a seven to two decision, the Supreme Court said, 
We think there is an unwritten right to abortion in the Constitution. They rejected the notion that it was the Ninth Amendment. They said well, they they instead said well whether they didn't exactly reject it. They said well whether the Ninth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment. We're going to focus on the Fourteenth Amendment due process clause, which says. No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Again, ratified in 1868 in the wake of the Civil War to try to bring some semblance of justice and peace and fairness in the wake of the Civil War and America's great sin of chattel slavery. And at a time, as you say, when abortion was greatly disfavored and illegal. Yeah, it was criminalized. You'd be charged with a felony if you committed an abortion. And a month after it was ratified, the state of Ohio... Uh, which right on the heels of ratifying the 14th Amendment said, we're going to tighten up our law even further from the moment of conception. We're going to ban abortion because it is in the language of of the legislature at the time, child murder. Okay. So there's no question as to why it is state legislatures were banning abortion. They did so for this really at the behest of physicians who were arguing that uh, science and and medicine had advanced to the point to recognize that the unborn child is a human being entitled to the equal respect and protection of the law from the moment he or she comes into existence at fertilization, not some later point in pregnancy. And nobody in 1868, when they they ratified the 14th Amendment, thought that what they were doing was preventing the states from regulating abortion. Nobody thought that. Nobody thought that until the end of the 20th century when in Roe v. Wade, The court says, in an opinion by Justice Blackmun, there's a fundamental right to privacy, which is unwritten, which includes uh, a right to abortion. And then he didn't stop there. I mean, and that, by the way, was provoked quite a reaction of surprise and confusion, even among progressives in the United States. John Hart Ely, a pro-choice professor of law, said, this is this is crazy. This is where, where are they getting this right to abortion from? They're pulling it out of the air. Others said, even those who supported the notion of a right to privacy with respect to contraception said, this is obviously different from that. Um, This is such a stretch. Lawrence Tribe thought it was a stretch. Later on, Ruth Bader Ginsburg suggested that it was an an overreach for them to sweep away all the laws in the country at once. Not only did they sweep away all the laws, but then they replaced it with this kind of Byzantine trimester framework where they said in the first trimester, and this again, based entirely on Justice Blackmun's own speculative reflection. There was no trial record to rely on. There were no findings of fact. There were no facts about history. He actually relied on two law review articles by a professor named Cyril Means, who was also counsel to NARAL, the National Abortion Rights Action League at the time, who claimed falsely that there had been a common law right to abortion prior to quickening before the 19th century, and that when the 19th century legislatures restricted abortion, they did so as a matter of driving midwives off the playing field and protecting doctors' uh, prerogatives. It was just, it was completely made up. In fact, so so crazy and outrageous, even Jane Rose lawyers and papers that later came to light said, this is so unpersuasive and such a reach, but I guess if you repeat something enough, people will buy into it. And that's part of the advocacy here. Justice Blackman relied on facts, again, that weren't in evidence about the relative safety of abortion versus childbirth. May, you know, again, that's a fact that has to be has to be litigated. It was never litigated. It was he just simply says it um, that abortion is safer than childbirth earlier in pregnancy. So that means in the first trimester, the state can't restrict abortion at all. Second trimester, the state can only adopt restrictions that relate to promoting uh, maternal health. That's the only justification. You can't you can't enact laws to protect unborn children in the second trimester. It's only in the third trimester of pregnancy, Justice Blackman said 
that the state can restrict abortion. But even when it restricted abortion, it had to include exceptions for the life of the mother, which all the states, state laws had anyway since 1868 or in, in, in 1801 prior to that. Uh, but also the health of the mother, which he didn't define exactly, but there are indications in his opinion and in the companion case of Doe Volton decided the same day that what they meant by health was in, was very broad and very capacious and encompassed any aspect of a woman's well-being beyond health, physical health, beyond and mental health, including familial and economic interests. Effectively, what the court did in Roe v. Wade was create out of whole cloth, contrary to the history of our country, a right to abortion effectively through nine months of pregnancy on demand up until the third trimester. And this was the law from 1973 until 1992. And then in 1992, in a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey, uh, a moment at which a lot of people thought the court was going to overturn Roe, uh, because there had been quite a few Republican appointees to the court. The court instead uh, reaffirmed the challenged laws, by the way, were these Pennsylvania laws. They're just side constraints on abortion. Uh, the 1989 uh, Pennsylvania Abortion Control Act, which had like a 24-hour waiting period and a parental notification rule and a form consent rule and a spousal notification rule and certain changes to the definition of medical emergency in the state code. And so these were, you could have answered all these questions without overturning Roe, although two cases between Casey and Roe had resolved a couple of the issues that were presented in Casey and said that you can't do those things because they violate the, the very strict holding of Roe v. Wade. But in, the, in Casey, the court says, okay, we are going to reaffirm the, what we call the central holding of Roe v. Wade in a five to four decision. It was a badly fractured decision. There was a three judge plurality that was writing the binding opinion. And then you had just some justices concurring and dissenting in part, but it ultimately was a five to four decision to reaffirm what they called the core holding of Roe. But then when you look at what they said they're reaffirming, it was quite different from Roe. It was, they moved away from the concept of privacy to the concept of liberty. They abandoned the trimester framework in favor of this binary pre versus post viability framework prior to viability. You can't unduly burden a woman's right to abortion. After viability, you can restrict abortion, but you have to you have to make exceptions for the life and health of the mother as defined in Doe and, and Roe. They abandoned the notion that abortion was a fundamental right. Instead, they called it something like a protected liberty interest, which, again, is a sort of a shift. I mean, all these things are dramatic shifts. After they described what the new rule was, it looked like Roe had basically been overturned and replaced by some other abortion regime by the court that was equally indefensible in terms of its constitutional moorings. They talk about, they, they gave a normative justification. They said, the, you know, the burdens on a woman are so unique and distinctive that she has to be free. She has to be free to pursue uh, her future through recourse to an abortion. Effectively saying, as the court wrote it, that the Constitution has a kind of theory of personhood. The states are not allowed to treat an unborn child as a full person, meaning the Constitution forbids it. The Constitution actually embedded within it has a notion that the unborn child is less than a person. And that's a shocking claim to to, yes. to, to a lot of people. Um, and it was, and it's, it just shows another example of the, the the wound to our country that these cases did. Not just creating the conditions where 63 million babies uh, were aborted since 1973, which is bad enough, but but the idea that our constitution, the very document, very instrument that created our country had a theory of personhood that, that re relegated the unborn child to a subpersonal status. So the court says, you know, we, we think the woman's burdens, the burdens of the woman are, are so significant as compared to the, the state's interest in the unborn child, which we don't recognize as being significant compared to the woman's interest. Again, the Constitution doesn't resolve, at least it doesn't appear to resolve that 
balancing of goods, the goods of the woman on the one hand versus the unborn child. On the other. But they, they claim that it did. Uh, but then the, the real linchpin of Casey is their discussion of a principle called stare decisis, which is a common law principle that says in a judicial system that depends on past precedent, courts are invited to, but not required to consider the practical consequences of overturning previously wrongly decided cases. They're, they're, they're asked to consider uh, whether or not the previous decision was not merely wrongly decided, but egregiously so, whether or not the doctrine has been challenged and hollowed out, whether it's proven to be unworkable, uh, created a rule that people was sort of created instability in the system. And they ask the question of whether or not people have come to rely on that decision. Now, the reliance idea, which you hear a lot about in the public debate over these things, in Casey, they kind of flipped it on its head. Reliance as an idea in American law had never been a forward-looking prospective concept. Like, will people ever in the future need to rely on this precedent? That wasn't the understanding of what reliance was. It was always a backwards-looking idea that are there settled interests that were established in the past that would be unsettled and destabilized by a new, by a change in the law? That's obviously not the case with abortion. Abortion deals with prospective events, people becoming pregnant in the future, not someone who made a decision in the past that becomes destabilized by by a change in the law. So Casey was off the rails, not just in terms of its invention of, uh, you know, or trying to reground or reinvent the right to abortion, it was off the rails in terms of its understanding of stare decisis as well. And then the last thing, and I don't mean to go on for so long, but the last thing the court says in Casey is that uh, after they say, well, you know, stare decisis requires us to reaffirm Roe because it's a, still a good rule. It hasn't been hollowed out. It's perfectly workable, all of which are false, by the way. Legislatures had no idea what they could or couldn't do. And in fact, Casey itself shows the instability of that. Two rules that were unlawful under Roe were lawful under Casey. So, I mean, it's completely, the state legislatures had no idea what the boundary lines were in terms of what they were permitted to do under the regime of abortion that the Supreme Court invented. And then the last thing the court said, and it says, of course, that people have defined their, themselves with respect to a right to abortion. Their entire self-understanding is dependent upon this right to abortion. Women's flourishing is dependent upon a right to abortion. Again, no evidence, not taking into account the fact that there were a number of both legal and cultural changes that opened the door and helped women to you know, remediate past discrimination and pr to put them on the path to an equal footing with men, all sorts of, you know, non-discrimination statutes. All that was not taken into account. It was just abortion. Abortion was the thing that made women equal. And so, and then the last thing the court said, which is in some ways the most chilling, they say, listen, uh, our legitimacy as an institution depends on us reaffirming Roe v. Wade, which of course they didn't reaffirm, they reinvented it. But like depends on us reaffirming the notion of a right to abortion. If we are seen to be capitulating to political pressure, our legitimacy will suffer. And I mean, first of all, that's it's, it's, it's a ridiculous assessment because obviously the losing side is going to consider that you've capitulated to political pressure since we're already in the realm of just simply making things up, right? Not, yes. And um, and it's it's really, it's it's quite imperious of the court to say, you know, time for everybody to go home now. We've found a solution to this problem. It's a statesmanlike solution. We're not as strict as we were in Roe. You know, you can you can do some things. You can have informed consent and waiting periods and so on, but you can't ban abortion prior to viability. But you can do these other things and you can signal your respect for life. But again, it's just the court trying to do politics. 
by its own lights. And um, as we all know, in 1992, uh, the pro-life movement did not uh, go away, did not accept that you know, resolution invented by the court, but continued to fight. Uh, state legislatures continued to fight political in the political sphere, um, in the private sphere, caring for mothers and babies and families. And uh, that culminated uh, with uh, what happened a month ago. What was at issue at Dobbs? You know, uh, what was being challenged? Yeah, Dobbs was kind of the perfect test case for uh, the continuing vitality of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, because what Dobbs was, uh, was a, a, state, a state statute in Mississippi that banned abortion after 15 weeks. Okay. So it's interesting. It's politically interesting because a 15 week abortion ban is a pretty modest ban as far as it goes. I mean, there's a lot of political support for it. If you compare it to Europe, bans in Europe and so on are, you know, are res- restrictions on abortion generally take place at you know 12 weeks or earlier. So it's actually more permissive than most European countries and certainly more than other countries around the world. And yet, even though it was a very permissive law that only captured a, a vanishingly small percentage of abortions in Mississippi, it was unconstitutional uh, according to the plain meaning of Roe and Casey. I mean, Casey said prior to viability, you cannot ban abortion. And 2022, 15 weeks is pre-viability. The only choices were to say, well, there were really three choices. The first choice was to simply say, which is what the lower courts did, well, this obviously violates Casey. We're going to strike it down and reaffirm Roe and Casey. That's option one. Option two would be to say, no, uh, we will affirm this law as constitutional and therefore must strike down Roe and Casey, which is, of course, what the court did. And then option three, which only, as far as I can tell, only one person thought was a possible option, was to somehow reinvent yet again the right to abortion, create a new rule that allows a 15-week ban to stand as constitutional, but then not take a position on earlier uh, restrictions on abortion. That was the position of Chief Justice Roberts, by the way. Yes. No, and and I think that's interesting because, you know, as as Alito pointed out uh, in in his opinion, neither side was arguing that, as you say, that, that no, no one, one, no one, no agreed one that thought that was... <laughs> that, that was a workable <laughs> right. solution, yeah. as you say, except for one, except for one. Yeah, that oral argument, it was quite stunning. And in fact, as a, and just as a purely like strategic matter, it, it was, I was a little surprised that the um, abortion rights side went that direction. I mean, they, they really went all in and they said, and the Solicitor General of the United States, who was defending the abortion rights position in this case, uh, said there are no half measures here. And the Solicitor General of Mississippi agreed. And the, the, the parties agreed. There's no way to do this without squarely engaging the continuing vitality of Roe and Casey. You can't have it both ways. And Chief Justice Roberts tried to have it both ways and, and didn't persuade anybody in his concurring opinion. But um, the court concluded, and the reason I went through all that history before, the court in Dobbs, written an opinion written by Justice Alito, says, okay, we're going to ask two questions. The first question is whether or not the Constitution has a right to abortion in it. And that's the first question that Roe and Casey said yes to. Really, Roe says yes, and Casey says, well, even if Roe was wrong, we have to keep it because of stare decisis. And then the second question is stare decisis. And so as to the first question, Justice Alito said any mode of constitutional interpretation that uh, that involves the discovery of unenumerated, that is unwritten rights, has to be tethered to the text, history, and tradition of the Constitution. Otherwise, judges and justices are simply going to be just doing politics by their own lights. You have judges have to restrict their own discretion in interpreting the Constitution to the text, history, and tradition. 
he went through the history exhaustively and at length and shows, as I did very briefly here, recapitulating his arguments earlier in our conversation, that there is simply no way to argue that there is a there was at common law or certainly in the 19th century at ratification or even to the moment Roe was decided or even after Roe was decided. When you, in this case, you had 26 states signing amicus briefs in the Dobbs case calling for Roe to be overturned. Right. So there's no evidence at all that Roe was settled or that Roe was an important part of our legal fabric or the, of our nation. It was constantly challenged. It was constantly undermined. It didn't have a, a coherent rationale. The rationale constantly shifted over a period of 50 years. You know, we didn't go through all the intervening cases after between Casey and Dobbs, but those cases are examples of the justices disagreeing among themselves of what Casey even meant, right? Like you don't have five just And so yes. Justice Alito says, look, there's no sense at all in which this is firmly rooted in our history and tradition. There's no way to justify uh, the right to abortion based on prior precedents, which are distinguishable. They involve privacy, contraceptions, not the intentional killing of an unborn child, rearing one's children. You know, the cases that established this right to privacy did not point in the direction of a right to abortion. And so he said there's simply there's simply no evidence in our precedents or in the history and tradition of the Constitution that there's a right to abortion. And then he makes the side point, by the way, that even the cases after Roe and Casey, like the Obergefell case involving same-sex marriage and, or prior to Roe and the Loving versus Virginia case involving interracial marriage, he said those have nothing to do with the right to abortion. Those are distinguishable. And our holding today does not call into question the holdings in those decisions, which is something you in the debate, oh, they're coming for same-sex marriage or interracial marriage. If it's okay to wipe out this precedent, what about other precedents? Justice Alito goes out of his way to make the point that that's not true. And um, and Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion underscores that even further. So then they turn to the question of stare decisis. And in stare decisis, Justice Alito, again, methodically goes through the factors. He says, look, um, since its inception, Roe and Casey have been unstable. They've been unworkable. They were egregiously and grievously wrongly decided in terms of their reasoning. They've been the source of constant consternation and criticism, even among justices on the court. And moreover, he goes back to the original principle of reliance and saying, and reliance interests are not sufficient to override uh, this decision. Reliance, again, as articulated in Casey, is a, an innovation that departs from the usual understanding of reliance and creates something that would, wherein reliance would always be the case. Like any time you have a judicial decision, someone in the future might want to rely on it, but that can't be what reliance means. It has to be a backwards looking kind of a concept. Horton Casey even says explicitly, reproductive decision-making can take immediate uh, cognizance of changes in the law. People can change their behavior. They can they can do different things. They can, you know, whatever. But it also goes to sort of this discussion of, you know, how the court is viewed. And it, it really, what it sets up is you can get something egregiously wrong from the beginning, and then the court can never, you know, by this line of argumentation, the court can never go back and and change a wrong decision. Yeah, no, it is absurd. Just and absurd. the idea that, it, and this was something that Justice Alito eventually, I think, pers- persuaded or succeeded in in um, overcoming the Solicitor General's arguments at oral argument that somehow you have to wait and see how bad a decision is before you can do something about it. He made the point that, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson, which was the stance for the proposition that, you know, separate but equal segregation by race is constitutional, stood for 58 years before it was overturned by Brown versus Board of Education. If you want to talk about reliance, entire school systems were built up in reliance on that wrongly decided precedent in Plessy. Um, and yet it was clear the day it was decided that Plessy was wrong and the court didn't need to wait 58 years before it uh, before it overturned that precedent. No, ex- exactly. And 
And, um, you know, I, I was just very struck by Alito's opinion. I mean, how thorough that, that he very much deconstructed this, as you've done for us today. But, you know, on the flip side, you know, I was struck by the dissent. And I guess most notably, um, you know, the group that was conspicuously absent from most of the discussion in the dissent, uh, you know, of, of the unborn child. And I don't know if you want to discuss a little bit yeah. of that with uh, kind of what the dissent so. Yeah, no, the dissent is, is interesting. The dissent actually doesn't, it's funny because the dissent doesn't make the arguments that are being made in the public square now, by the way. Now with Roe gone, let's be very clear. The health and life of women in this nation are now at risk. Understand this. I have seen the world where abortion is illegal. And we are not going back. The dissent doesn't say that this is going to lead to vagueness and ectopic pregnancies aren't going to be managed and miscarriages aren't going to be managed and people aren't doctors aren't going to know how to use medical judgment to determine what a woman's life is like. You don't you don't hear any of that argument in the dissent. Okay, that that's not in the dissent, which leads you to wonder whether or not that you know uh, they had unlimited time and these are very smart people writing this dissent and they didn't even bring those issues up. So uh, that yeah. should tell you something about the legitimacy of the arguments as they're being made now. But put that to the side, um, it is extraordinary. The the brief, uh, the dissent also doesn't really spend all the time trying to make the case for the proposition that there is a there is a right to abortion in the Constitution. They take issue, they claim, I think wrongly, that the, the majority is trying to freeze in amber standards of 1868. But abortion was a crime, not just in the 19th century. Abortion was a crime the day that Roe was decided in 30 states. You know what I mean? Like, so it's not, it's not, it's not the yes. case that it is freezing in amber 19th century attitudes, or they make up the point that, you know, 1868 women couldn't vote. Well, of course that's true and regrettable, but at the same time, um, once women got the franchise in the 20th century, these abortion laws stayed in place. There was not a movement to overturn them. Many of the women who pioneered the, the suffrage movement um, were themselves pro-life. Susan B. Anthony obviously was pro-life. And so it's just a lot of kind of, I mean, and I would say the tone, honestly, that is in is snarky in a way that is, uh, I think, surprising. Um, but to your point, they, they ultimately claim that Casey and Roe struck the right balance between the woman's interests, which are very significant in avoiding an unwanted, unplanned pregnancy, as well as parenthood, uh, versus the state's interest in, in unborn human life. And they don't really actually talk at all about the weightiness of the state's interest in unborn human life. They don't talk about the unborn child at all. The unborn child is almost entirely invisible, in their opinion. And... And so it's not a serious balance. It, it's, it, it covers up the premise, I think, of the dissent that the unborn child is not a person and that the um, Constitution requires us in, in, in the states and the political branches to, to treat the child as something less than a person. And that, again, I mean, I think just the most devastating thing that Justice Alito says in, in, in response to the dissent is uh, the Constitution does not have a theory of personhood that excludes the unborn child from the circle of humanity. It just doesn't. Uh, there's no evidence that it does. Uh, there's no evidence in other parts of the law that that's the case. And to read into the Constitution a theory of personhood that, that renders the unborn child as subpersonal is is illegitimate. No, ex exactly. And, you know, kind of changing topics just a bit, but 
kind of going to the the broader cultural impact this this decision will have. We know this decision was not a complete surprise due to the unprecedented leak, but but obviously when the decision came out, you know, there very strong reactions uh, were set off, fear, anger from those on the other side and I guess for those of us, you know, like yourself that have been working in the pro-life movement and continue to work in the pro-life movement, how do we address that issue of, you know, 50 years of the status quo pitting mother against child and and everything that Roe brought forth? How do we address the other side now? Yeah, I think we have to address the other side in a way that reflects the core of what the pro-life movement is, which is an inclusive, loving movement that welcomes people unconditionally and to extend the hand of friendship to people who disagree with us, people who are upset with us, and to treat people, uh, in a, again, in a way that, I mean, it's the, the caricature of the pro-life movement is that it's this cold, uncaring, patriarchal movement that only cares about human beings until they're born and then it abandons them. Well, obviously, the Catholic Church uh, is, is a living, breathing example of refuting that proposition. I mean, the Catholic Church invented the hospital. The Catholic Church provides more support for people in need than any other entity in the world. It is it, it is time for us to show our friends and neighbors who are pro-choice who we are. What Dobbs did, and it's, it's heartbreaking, is to surface this all this brokenness in, in, our, in our society, in our communities. All these people who who uh, have never really, you know, who, a lot of people who have, of course, had abortions, who are mm-hmm. wounded wounded by that, whether they admit it or not, who deserve our care and affection and support, and people who have just kind of unthinkingly accepted the proposition that mothers and children are adversaries. You know, you hear uh, in the public square all, all these arguments, and I was just, I testified in court a couple weeks ago um, as an expert witness, and the, uh, and the other side presented evidence, they said, um, they had two witnesses, one of whom made the claim that basically being pregnant is the most dangerous thing you can ever do, and and giving birth is the most dangerous thing you can ever do. And then the other person went on and on about how terrible, how it ruins your life to have children, especially if you're poor or a minority. And it's just, it blew my mind how you could reduce their argument to, we don't, we hate mothers and we hate children, and, yeah. and um, especially children of color or children who are poor. And that just, I, I, I have to hope, and I hope to believe that that doesn't, sound to normal people's ears the way they think it sounds. I mean, it's so, it's such a sad and dark view of the world. And I think that we have to embrace, again, our friends and neighbors who have these misguided views and to to care unconditionally for all the moms and babies and families that are going to need our help even more than they ever have been. And I think we change hearts and minds, not through our arguments. And it's, you know, it's hard for me to say that as a, an academic and a law professor and a lawyer, but sure. We change hearts and minds by our actions. We change hearts and minds by loving people unconditionally and caring for them unconditionally. And that that is what softens people's hearts. And they'll see, they know who we are by how well we love them and how well we take care of them. Exactly. And and I know um, the DeNicola Center that, that you lead, you have a new uh, endeavor as well, post-Dobbs, correct? To, to kind of meet this need in this moment. And would you like to share a little bit about that? Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. So we, we uh, even prior to Dobbs, we had a good indication, we had a sense because of the way the argument had set up that this is this this was either this is the moment that Roe was going to be overturned or forever reaffirmed. And we were hopeful that it would be overturned. 
um, and uh, started to make arrangements, say, we need to get ready and Notre Dame needs to be ready. And so we're going to lead, lead Notre Dame in that way and create an initiative, which we call the Women and Children First Initiative, uh, imagining a post-Roe world. And it has multiple components. It's multidisciplinary. It involves research. It involves teaching. It involves service. It involves public witness and public engagement. A couple examples of the things we're working on is we have, uh, we're working with colleagues in the university um, and, and other departments to try to, to do an impact study for maternal group homes to, to find out what uh, the best practices are, most impactful and beneficial to moms and babies and families uh, in maternal group homes. We're studying five maternal group homes across the country and gathering information, and then we're going to analyze it and publicize the results. We have a group of pro-life physicians that we have uh, impaneled to uh, to reflect on the meaning of what pro-life care really looks like, especially for underserved populations and communities. We had a wonderful uh, panel discussion of a group of very eminent um, OBGYNs and other physicians back in April. Uh, it was the it was uh, sort of an add-on to our Evangelium Vitae Medal Award, which honors heroes of the pro-life movement uh, that Notre Dame gives that we administer. And we honor John Bruchowski, who is a very well-known OBGYN who began his career pre- performing abortions and IVF and then had a conversion and change of heart and now cares for the poor and underserved and minority communities in the D.C. area, as well as other communities, um, giving them pro-life, whole life, obstetrical and gynecological care and services. And so we are working with those physicians to try to to, to try to work out what physicians can do and how we can support them. We're going to have a panel, a series of panel discussions coming up shortly, uh, Zoom panels made up of these uh, very thoughtful physicians to talk about care uh, for for the underserved, but also to talk about dispelling some of the myths that you're hearing in the public square right now. There's a lot of confusion, misinformation floating around involving the application of the laws, the pro-life laws that either have come back online uh, through the trigger mechanism or that were recently enacted. There are claims that these laws will lead to women dying or women becoming severely injured. And uh, we, we are trying to dispel those myths, especially around the questions of ectopic pregnancy and miscarriage management, life-threatening conditions, and so on. And so, and we also have a legal component to it. We have a, a, a group of legal consultants who are analyzing all the difficult and interesting questions that, have, that are going to come up now that uh, the political branches of government can resolve this question. And I should say something we didn't say before, which is the consequences of Dobbs is that the matter of abortion is going to be resolved through the political branches of government. That is at this, probably more at the state level than the federal level, but our elected representatives can now debate and discuss and enact laws and policies that protect mothers and babies and families the right way, whereas before they were forbidden from doing that by the Supreme Court's jurisprudence. And I think that's important. And I just want to go back to the education portion of, of what you said, which I think is going to be critical and not even just for the misinformation. But I think we have a segment of the population that because of Roe and Casey and, and, and all that are just through no fault their own, ignorant about what the law was, you know, and, and kind of the facts regarding abortion. And, and I go back to, you know, the uh, Bill Maher conversation, the progressive comedian talk show host, you know, that, that kind of when this all came up with the leak, kind of sat there and admitted on air that. I didn't know the majority of women were pro-life. I didn't know that we were, you know, in the United States, much more permissive than than most European nations. And, you know, maybe I'm overly optimistic, but there's a hope at least that by moving this and sending it back to the states, we can have these conversations that we just weren't able to have before. Because to me, it's stunning that, you know, they're, they're very educated people 
that aren't even aware of, of just how extreme our law was compared to the rest of the world. It's true. And, and there was a study that I saw that showed over well over 60% of people thought that overturning Roe and Casey meant that abortion would be criminalized nationwide. Yes. I mean, the, the loudest voices that you hear are usually from states in which abortion is not just permitted, but funded uh, throughout yes. nine months of pregnancy, New York, Illinois, California, these progressive voices, again, not realizing, or, or maybe they do realize, and, they, and they're, they're benefiting from the confusion that the notion that um, that uh, in certain states, uh, abortion is going to be significantly restricted. In other states, it's going to be promoted. That's the, for better or worse, that's what the nature of federalism um, contemplates. And so, so yeah, it's, it's, there's a great deal of uh, in, in misinformation and ignorance. And, and I think people, and even most basically, I think people haven't really actually thought through the question of the morality and the justice of abortion generally because uh, they haven't had occasion to. They, they don't know anything about the biology of when life begins. They don't know anything about the way the court had completely um, ignored the, the moral status of the unborn child, the notion that unborn children are aborted at an extraordinarily high rate, that communities of color are especially affected by abortion, that babies with Down syndrome and other disabilities are aborted at extraordinary rates. I mean, these are, these are shocking things to people like you and me who've been involved in this for a very long time. Uh, I mean, the, the, it's, it's not shocking to us because we were, I mean, it is shocking morally, but, but it's, it's old news in, in a way. Most people have no idea about all this. Most people think that abortions are, I mean, if you, if you follow the media's narrative, it's, it's like abortion is only something that happens when someone's raped or, or when their life is in danger. Exactly. Right? I mean, like, and, and that's and, and those are tragic circumstances, of course, that require our careful attention and, 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 and loving response. Not to, I'm not don't mean to make light of that by any means, but um, the, the majority of abortions in this country, even according to Planned Parenthood and, and, and the Guttmacher Institute, are are elective abortions. And if you and, and if you pull people, all these terrible, unreliable polls about attitudes about abortion, once you say, I mean, people say who you know, most people wanted Roe to be sustained but then the very same people say that they want to ban abortion at six weeks or 12 weeks yes well, that's, yeah. you know, that, that, that just reflects fundamental confusion about basic facts and so we have to be patient uh, with our friends and neighbors who have not had to think about this for 50 years and as they as they come to learn what the what the facts are no and and we appreciate the work you're doing and Notre Dame is doing to try to help in that regard and try to spread this message and just, you know, spread the love and care that's going to be needed uh, in a post-Obs world. So um, thank you so much again, Carter, for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Today. Thanks for I, having me. Our pleasure. And we enjoyed the insight and all the, and honestly, all the work that you have done uh, in defending and helping to build a culture of life. So thank you again. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in today. And we hope you join us next time for MCC from the Capitol podcast. God bless. Thanks for listening to this episode from MCC from the Capitol. To hear more from the Missouri Catholic Conference, visit our website at mocatholic.org. That's mocatholic.org. If you enjoyed this episode of MCC from the Capitol, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app.